My guest in this episode is Ross Ashburn, Client Services Partner and Business Development Leadership at EY in the UK, a firm he has been at for 12 years and where he made partner after eight. He currently leads a team of 150. Prior to this, he worked in BD for PwC after a successful period as a sales recruiter at Michael Page. He entered the world of sales at an early age, choosing work over academic study. And his career journey is inspirational, particularly for anyone looking to move into a team leadership position. Welcome to the podcast, Ross. Hello. Hi, Graham. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, I know that your career journey is going to be interesting to so many people, and I know that it's taken a few twists and turns. But before we get into that, I want to start asking you about your education. I do this with every guest that we have. You studied arts and graphic design. What did you want to be? So um, my family business was interior design. I grew up with design. Um, so I did want to be a designer. Yeah. But like many things in life, when you look left and right and you realise there's some really talented people around you and maybe you're not quite as talented, uh, it gives you a bit of a leveller. And that's exactly what happened to me. So I'd spent uh, probably two years um, at, at art college. Fantastic time, as everyone does have. Right. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, super creative. Lots of stuff going on. But I had picked up that, yeah, th- this wasn't going to be a career where I could really succeed and be at the top of my game. Was this a degree that you were doing or was it? Yeah, so, so I completed a foundation degree uh, and then went on to the, the main degree. And I was in my just coming up to my second year. And I decided actually the world of work was was where I needed to be in. Right. So you left. Yeah. And what happened next? <laughs> well, I mean, it was quite interesting. It's quite a slow leave. So interestingly, they were still marking my work, even though I wasn't there. Uh, so kind of gives you some indication as to what quality establishment I was I was going to. But I was working already both mornings and the evenings for logistics provider DHL. So, so what was the job at DHL? I was a van driver. I was a courier. Uh, okay. So I was doing mornings and then that took on more full time. And I decided that that was, that was a better thing for me to be doing at the time is to get out into the world of work. And I was, I was very fortunate in that um, this was before the days of having kind of internet, right, where you could rebook your deliveries, where you could easily kind of you know leave them with the neighbor or whatever so the phone just used to ring in the depot like every night that was the only way that people could rearrange or companies could rearrange uh, and everyone ignore it right you've got to think about these people as like shift workers coming in clocking in clocking out and i used to pick up the phone deal with people uh, and i was just really lucky that the um, head of sales in our kind of main depot that day and heard me on the phone and then about a week later i was asked to go and see her in her office uh, and I was thinking, this isn't good, right? I'm being asked to see the big boss. Something's gone wrong. Uh, I went up to see her and she said, look, what are you doing? You know, wh- where are you going? What are you doing with your life? Um, have you ever thought about sales? And you know, like most of us, we fall into this, right? Whether whether it, we call ourselves salespeople or not, we kind of all are. We, we Our job is to create additional revenue for the companies we work for. Therefore, we're in sales. And she put me on an academy. Uh, I had to go and pass um, like a week's assessment centre to get put on effectively a graduate programme for for sales. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where I started. Now, the thing that I look back on really fortunately about that experience is one, being spotted. And and that's important to me. It's what I tend to do with a lot of other people. It's maybe those ones that are a bit the unsung heroes that are just getting the job done in the background and, uh, and actually may not have the loudest voice. 
But the thing that's, that really changed things for me is if you work for a high volume, low margin business, some of the sales training you get is exceptional, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's very little to differentiate between the two. And much like uh, any business, yeah, DHL is, is kind of no different from big four, from yeah, big recruiters. There's kind of like four big competition, right? In that world, much the same as everywhere else. There's four big players. And that's what, if you're one of the big players, you have to differentiate against them. So the sales training was exceptional, right? And that really led me on to kind of the career from there, to be honest. And I look back with both really fond memories of my time there, a little bit scary being just thrown out there, like, yeah, well done, you've passed the assessment center, you're going to get a few experiences, and then we're going to chat you out in a field sales role. Uh, And here's your territory, and it needs to grow by 20%, off you go. You know, (laughs) it's a bit of responsibility at quite a young age. Um, But I really enjoyed it. And, And I guess that's where I found my my passion what did your family think that like, you said before that you came from a family of designers that was that was the, that was the family business and here you are driving a van for dhl and then moving into sales i mean i mean like anything i think as yeah they wanted to make sure that i was going to be well and succeed i think the the writing was on the wall that i wasn't going to be out there as some scholar so i don't think it was a huge surprise to them that this was the route that i was going to take Mm-hmm. I think they were pretty supportive. Um, once I got into sales, they could tell that I was quite target driven anyway as an individual. You know, if there's not a target there, I flail a little bit. Mm. Um, so I need that drive and that that goal. So as soon as they saw that I sort of got into that environment where I was going to be constantly gold and targeted and therefore want to achieve and overachieve, they were really comfortable with with, with what I was doing. I mean, they were so comfortable that uh, they they sold the family house. It got demolished, and they moved to Spain and left me on my own. <laughs> <laughs> now you left DHL and you went to Michael Page, the global recruitment company. Yeah. You were there for nearly five years. I'm interested. What was it about recruitment that attracted you? Well, it's like it's it's like the uh, that people always kind of say, you know, have you ever thought about recruit, you know, re- recruitment? And I, I hadn't. I, I was there for a day's assessment centre. Uh, I had the opportunity to go there, and and whilst I was there, they said, have you ever thought about um, a career in recruitment? And I hadn't. I didn't really know what it entailed. I didn't really have an appreciation for, I guess, the the highs and the lows that you can experience in it until I got into it. But what appealed was um, a really good kind of network of people, very clear kind of boundaries around who your clients were. Uh, and I really wanted that kind of city life, right? I, I hadn't worked in London. I'd worked with clients in London, but not had that life. And that's what really appealed, right? Lots of young people doing the same thing, target driven. And of course, some financial metrics, you know, alongside it that, that meant that it looked like a really good place to be and play. Mm. And what, what's interesting is that you were there for nearly five years. And often when you look at recruitment consultants, they either they either last two years and they've gone, or if they get past two years, they continue on and, and they become like me, you know, in it for 100 years. Um, why did you leave there to go to PwC? How did that even come about? So the, the, the business that I helped create at, at Page was placing business development professionals into professional services and financial services. So I was looking at these people moving around into what looked like really exciting and interesting jobs mm-hmm. and helping place them. And of course, like anything, I think one of the best things about recruitment, right? You get to ask people loads of questions about their journey. Yeah, part of that interview process is just fascinating. Mm. And 
once I started to learn all these people, there was travel involved, there was different teams, there seemed to be really quite diverse careers. Uh, and of course, I started to get really friendly with some of the hiring contacts in, in these firms. So friendly that, that one day we were trying to place a role um, and one of those hiring contacts just said, well, couldn't you come and do it? And at the time, I kind of, no, 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 I'm all settled. You know, I've been building this thing for a while. I've got a team, you know, it's all good. And then I sort of reflected on it and I was thinking, well, okay, well, at this point in my my life, my career, I was around 30 years old. Maybe now's the time to make the jump if I'm going to make the jump. Mm -hmm. And I think the comfort blanket was, well, look, if it doesn't work, I've got recruitment. I seem to be successful in it. I can come back to it. Um, So let's go and give this this a go. I actually had two offers. I had an offer from EY and an offer from PwC (laughs) in tandem. Unfortunately, there was a financial crash at the time. I didn't get to join EY as a, as a result of that. Mm-hmm. PwC good to their word and 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 kept uh, and kept the offer there. So I joined, but really EY was was kind of the home that I wanted to get to. There was something about the culture there that fit me. So that's how I ended up here. After that, how did you go from culturally going from a recruitment business to a global BIM off like PwC? I mean, how did you adapt to that type of job and that type of? Yeah, it's, it was quite it's quite different and. Yeah, I've got great words to say about PwC because they gave me a brilliant experience. But the, from a culture perspective, at the time, I'm sure it's very different now, but at the time, it was very much about supporting professionals in the market, mm-hmm. not being a professional in the market yourself. And that was the biggest change, I think. Rather than being, well, well in, in recruitment, not only are you dealing with the kind of supply and demand side, right, and, and you're dealing with both in tandem, you get into kind of one of these environments and actually your support to both the supply and demand. It felt quite strange rather than being the leader mm-hmm. of it. Um, and EY had always positioned themselves, certainly in my conversations with them, as no, you won't be support. You'll be driving your own kind of client relationships, your own sales. And, and that's what really appealed. So so the, the first, I guess, year or so at PwC was a bit of a culture shock. I think it was more of a culture shock for them, to be honest. <laughs> so as I came in, they were really struggling to originate business and originate new client contacts and originate meetings. And that just wasn't a problem for me. So mm. I was you know, like, give me a list. Who do you want to meet? Okay, off I go. I'll find a good reason and we'll go out and meet them. And I think they had a bit more of a culture shock of like, oh God, this guy's like going like a rocket. We're going to have to start shaping up a bit and keep up with the pace. And <laughs> um, so, and I think one of the, I guess, frustrations in that first, in those early years was how fast can I go? Um, and, and, without losing people. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of analytics and reflective types in, in the big four organizations. Mm-hmm. And to have somebody who's flat out driver driver on a personality scale, sometimes you can you can get things wrong. Mm-hmm. And I learned quite a lot from mm-hmm. probably the, the worse end of experiences than the better end of experiences, you right. know, in terms of how I needed to flex and how I needed to grow up a little bit. I'm taking my first deep dive here because we've covered a lot of ground already. From dropping out of university, being a courier driver, then a recruiter, his skills and experience were honed at the coalface, dealing with people. Confidence and ambition played a key part in his journey, but what is interesting is that when he moved into a multi-services environment, he realised that he needed to temper some of these drivers that had previously proven to be his strengths. It's a good lesson in realising that to be successful in these large, complex businesses, you need to be aware of the other personality types around you and adapt your style. 
Let's return to the interview. Then you joined DY, the company you wanted to join. So you joined DY, but in a pursuits role. And we had another guest on the podcast, Heather Vagdama, who also did a stint with KPMG in pursuits. I'm just interested, what impact did that job specifically around pursuits, what impact did it have on your career? Yeah, so I, I, it's interesting. So I had um, the BD team together. There's around 130 of us in, in, in the UK. Uh, and I had all of us together about a month ago for a day focused on kind of be, being adaptive to what we face in, in front of us. And one of the things that I was saying to all of them is that the one skill uh, and I guess experience that has seen me through has been understanding how to assemble a team around a client opportunity and how to get that team from zero to win in a way that works for us and for the client. Mm-hmm. So that pursuits experience, there's, there's not a day that goes by where I won't be dipping into a pursuit of some kind. I've got two on the go at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm always going back to that core area of strength. And the reason being is that there's not many people that know how to get the right team together, get them motivated around a goal, understand what are the steps that you need to take to put something in that feels like a winning um, proposal and then get the team from, okay, well, that felt like a winning document. How do we make the the, the client recognize that when we meet them? How do we make them really want to work with us and only us? How do we really accentuate the the areas of strength that we've we've got? And, And I think that particular skill, as I look around, you can see um, certainly in, in the partnership at EY, you can see the partners who've got it and understand it, and they tend to be the most successful, right? And they also, uh, I think what Pursuits teaches you um, is all of that coaching. And it's quite funny. All of that coaching you give others, you have to take your own medicine, right? You have to, because when it comes to your own career, it's no good saying to people, right, you need to be prepared. You need to, you need to make sure that you've got a clear middle and end. You need an end in mind, you need to signpost really clearly. It's no good doing all that with everybody else and then just not doing it yourself. Right? And what I found with Pursuits people is we're brilliant at coaching others. We're not good at coaching ourselves. Right. And that became really apparent to me as I went sort of, I guess, got slightly more senior in the, in the ranks and certainly towards partnership of actually where were my own edges that needed to be knocked off. And actually, you know, I, I called upon a lot of my colleagues to help me with that. Um, in terms of just how I was landing. Hmm. I mean, you, you've been at EY for 12 years and you made partner four and a half years ago, I think it, mm-hmm. it was. So you made partner after eight years. It, it's quite extraordinary. Talk us through the journey. H- how did you go from joining in pursuits to being a partner in eight years? Yeah, so so there's a, there's a kind of common theme, really. Um, I've been really fortunate for being spotted for what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I've not necessarily been somebody who creates a whole PR exercise around my own personal brand. I, I, I quietly and diligently get the job done. And I've been kind of joking a bit, actually. I think I think the doer is coming back in fashion at the moment. It tends to when we start yeah. to get some financial hardship. People like yeah. a doer. I'm yeah. definitely a doer. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of uh, noise in, in big organisations, not just partnerships, but in big organisations that, that people who are more about strategy and talking than actually getting it right down to a client level, to a relationship level, or making that all work. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a gap there. So I've always been very focused on relationship client, and very focused on, on win for the firm and win for the client, importantly. And, and I think that's really 
shown me quite well against maybe some of my peers at the time. So I've been really fortunate in being spotted for doing that. And I've had some great coaches who have um, effectively asked me to take on other roles. So I haven't gone in my whole time at EY, I haven't gone looking around saying, do you know why I'm a bit bored? I've been doing this for a couple of years. Can I do something else? It has always been the other way around, which is, Ross, we really like what you're doing. We see an opportunity over here where actually you could really deploy your skills um, and it could really help the firm. Can you come and do this for us, please? And it's a very different circumstance when you get asked in that way Mm. because you can say, yes, but, right, because there's a need there. So, yes, but this is what I'm going to need in in return. So you set me that time. You tell me what you need me to go and deliver in that area. And I've got some asks in return that aren't all about give me a bonus or, or you know, give me a promotion, much more subtle asks around, right, where do I want to get to and how am I going to navigate that? Mm-hmm. So I had some great coaches. And, and over that time, the people that I delivered for, well, they became coaches as well. So, so you end up with a bit of a groundswell. And, and what you often hear about people getting to, to equity partner in these firms is it, it kind of takes a village behind you. You know, it's not just you and, your, and you know, you're one sponsor. But the important part as you go through that journey, certainly for me, was I started doing that for others too. So as I'm going up, I'm I'm creating a bit of a pull through um, for those people that might have been overlooked in the past. And I spend a lot of time doing that. So for me personally at the moment, it's it's all about getting some some equity in terms of some of the, 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 the promotions that we're making, making sure that we've got uh, gender balance, making sure that we've got DE&I balance overall. And that's, that's become really important to me. So I'm now turning that coaching and all of that stuff that I received around to the people that I can see that are just doing, right? They're delivering day in, day out, and they have the capability and scale to go and do lots of other things if mm-hmm. they're supported in the right way. Does being a partner change the way you think about your job and, and sales in particular? I mean, as an owner of the business? Yeah, I think I think it does. I think, um, yes, but probably more that I'm I'm conscious to lead from the front. Right? So of the business development team that I have leadership responsibility over, I can't be asking them to do things that I'm not. So as an example, if we've got a certain uh, solution push, if there's a certain uh, legislative change that means there's opportunity for us, and I'm asking everyone to get behind it, I'm going to get out and get a sale in that. I'm not going to ask them to do it on my behalf. I'm going to go and show them that it's possible and how the way, and I'm going to do it in a way that that pulls some of those through so they can share in some of that success. So it has changed it in the sense of, right, that would have been my sale. I see the opportunity. Off I go. Fantastic. You know, hasn't it been a good year to, right, I've got, I've got 130 people on shore, 150 people overall. They all need a good year. Yeah. How do I help them succeed in that? And it's a it's a shift of mindset, I think, mm. once you start to, to to get into that, I guess, leading with a big L rather than a small L. Right. And I think the other part of it is you want to you want to make sure that you are not selling at all costs. You know, as a owner of the business, margin is really important. Uh, and sometimes for salespeople, that's less important. It's about the sale and, and the number. Yeah. Margin and deliverable. Well, that's someone else's problem. Right. Once it's mm. sold. Mm. I think the focus on margin for me has really has really changed and um, because I recognize that without that, how do we pay people good end of year kind of bonuses? How do we promote people? How do we invest in things that we really need to invest in? Um, how do we continue to be a voice in the market? How could I take time out to do something like this with you today mm. if we're not 
providing ourselves with that opportunity through good profitable business. Hmm. In professional services firms, in some professional services firms, sales was and still is a dirty word. Um, I'm, I'm interested, how has sales changed since you started your career? I mean, what's different? So I think the the difference is if I, if I if you imagine a, a bar chart and that bar chart is just all dark gray and you have a sales number at the top of it. In the past, it's been you just hit that number. Don't care what's in that dark gray. Whatever we've got as a business, you get out there and sell it and you hit that number and the return for the firm. I think what's changed is that there's another couple of colors in that bar chart. It's now saying, actually, salesperson, what's the sector specific sales that you've made? Because, yeah, we've got all this general stuff that every company needs. What's the specific to that sector? Yeah, for example, if you're in advanced mobility and manufacturing, what's specific to electric vehicles that you have been driving and selling this year? So there becomes, um, I guess, more of a, uh, more of content requirement from salespeople. And actually, that content is often stuff that you can't just uh, look back on. It's not old content. If you look at where we are now with sustainability as an example, mm-hmm. um, nobody knows, right? Nobody's done it before, right? That's why we're in this mess. So you can't look back. You actually have to be quite clever with the people that you work through, creating the right solutions for the right client. And that could be very sector specific. And then I think there's a color on top, right? So you've got a dark gray, light gray, and then you've got yellow. That yellow is the bit that really makes you stand out. And that yellow is driving the firm's strategy. So whatever firm you work for, what have they decided is going to give them the jump? Because every year they have the same services. They've got the same people. They've got the same kind of uh, time and materials way of charging their clients. So they can either sell more people, which means they need to buy more people. Seems a bit of an outdated model these days. Or actually, they can start to look for different ways to generate. You know, you look at people with data uh, as a service. You look at things that are much more kind of common now, like managed services and, and annuity revenue, things that we could operate on a client's behalf. That becomes the yellow. Right. That becomes the really specific sales bit that gives you the edge over and above your, your competition and your peers in the organization. And that's how I've been um, talking to our whole community about their career now and why adaption is really important. Mm. If you look at what is important to businesses today, uh, it's very different from what it was a year ago. It's going to be very different in the ne- in the coming months. And you know, sustainability is just a brilliant example of that at the moment. I like the way he breaks down the types of sales, dark grey, light grey and yellow, and how each type of sale should be directly linked to business strategy, but also future proofing and understanding that service development and adaption is key for pipeline, as opposed to sales for sales sake. It seems listening to you that that sales has become a team sport. It's a lot more collaborative than perhaps when you first started in your career where it was you know here's your own personal target go and set up the meetings and, and, and win the work is there a is there a sort of is there a sort of struggle between the the sales personality which is very much driven for personal target and the team player who may not be so driven i mean do you, how do you manage that balance between being a full-on sales focused individual and being a team player so I think the balance for me is making sure that the reward for leaning in and helping as a team is there. So the client won't applaud us if 
we miss out on something that's really important to them, right? These are thin margins when you go out to try and win. You know, typically, if we take the environment that I'm in, in the big four, we've all got great people. We've all got quality. We've all got great technology, right? So what really makes the difference? It's in the thin margins. And often that is the, the, the things where we either have an understanding and appreciation of the business because we've completed other projects that really have relevance. Uh, we have an understanding around what relationships are important to them and the ways of working and how that's important. Um, we have an understanding as to their future direction and where they're trying to get. It's very unlikely that a single salesperson is going to be able to spot all of those angles that could really benefit the client. Uh, and therefore, actually, that team approach is really important to win. So one of the things that we we are very focused on you know, with our sales teams is making sure that we are bringing in certain capability. So in the last year, uh, we built a complex deals team. Uh, these these folk are very specific to large partnerships with other organizations, often technology-backed, often managed services, really big, chunky deals that we can't do just on our own as our own firm. We also then have the pursuits team, and then we'll have the client. So in that view, you could have four to five to six salespeople playing a really key role in winning that client. Right. They'll all have a specific job to do where there's no overlap, whether it be commercial, whether it be negotiation, whether it be the actual model that we need to create, or whether it actually be all the client relationships that we need to re really work so they understand what it is that we're trying to do for them. So I'm quite passionate about making sure that everybody in that value chain is rewarded you know, as a result of that sale. So if we have to double count somebody's sale across those people, that is not a problem. Right? Okay. Not double count in terms of the actual number that goes into our system. Because uh, that wouldn't work from a from a whole billing and everything else, but but from a reward perspective, if you have a demonstrable role and we can show it, and you can prove it in terms of the feedback that's provided, then you should be rewarded for that, right? Because mm -hmm. that that collective effort has helped us position ourselves in a in a way where the client feels that we are the best choice for them. When when you joined DY, did you ever think partnership would be available to you? No, no, I, I, it's it, not that it didn't that it might not be available i hadn't considered that that's where i'd end up and there is there is a kind of journey that you go on i think what one is you know is, is that is that what i want to be could i be you know i looked at the partners at the time this was a long time ago right they were very credible and, and technical experts in their particular chosen field and there wasn't many markets partners that i could see other than the um, global client service partners, the big relationship partners. And I was looking at that, and that felt like a big step away from, from where I was, from capability, from experience. And I sort of didn't, didn't work towards that. But every time I was fortunate enough to go for a promotion and be successful, and therefore the firm put that trust in me to deliver the next level of investment that they're putting in me, um, I kind of set my sights on the next goal. I'm like, okay, well, if they trust me to do this, what would the next step be like? And, and as I got closer, I mean, most people will, will tell you if they've been in a, in a partner process with, with a firm, it's a bit like the okie-cokie. You're in and you're out, you know, more times than you can count. Um, sometimes from, from the, the firm's view, sometimes from your own view. And there is a lot of imposter syndrome that you, you kind of suffer with. You know, certainly if you don't come from one of those technical expertise backgrounds. One thing I definitely learned as, as I went through this is – you can have all the technical experts in the world, but if you don't have people that can build relationships, 
can understand a client need and can move the firm in a way that nobody else can, then we, we just won't be successful or as successful as we want to be. Mm. And I think I've learned that, that you know, where I belong here is in around the really tricky areas that we have struggled to succeed in in the past, mm-hmm. whether that be solutions or teams, uh, particular offerings, um, and how do we make that successful? How do we put enough drive behind it? How do we get enough voice of the customer back to, to kind of change our approach? Um, how do we put the right teams behind it and show them that it's an opportunity and a career opportunity for them? And I've sort of, I, I guess I've learned that that's where the firm gets the most benefit. If I look back over where they've asked me to take on roles, it's typically been something really hard. Right. right? It's not been something here, some guy's moving off, you know, <laughs> They're leaving this wonderful team and everything in it, and it's all perfect to, for you to take over. It's not been those types of opportunities. It's typically yeah. been, oh, we've got a problem area. Can you get in and fix this? We need, we need to generate revenue and profit from this area. Why? Why you? Why do they choose you? Well, I think, I think one is a bit of trust that I'll navigate it in a way where I'll bring people with me, which is, which is important. And it comes back to... You know, where I started of being spotted on a phone in a in a cold warehouse in in Kent. You know, it comes back to that spotting people, bringing people with you, showing that there's there's a goal and a focus, and showing that actually if we pull together, we can we can reach that. So there's a lot of visioning that goes into it, but a lot of proof that has to go alongside it because much like um, you know, EY isn't on its own. The other big four are very similar and, and other firms are very similar. People can choose to kind of where they spend their time. It's a matrix organization. I don't have any control over them, yeah. just like nobody else does, right? We, we, we have some stakeholders that give us some steer, but we we can only get people to play in our area if it's exciting and good for them, both from a reward and a career perspective, mm-hmm. and they feel valued, uh, their voice is heard, and it's fair. And I think that's what I, I hope I've been able to demonstrate over this time um, to bring people with me in that way. And it's it, it's really important to me to do it. Plus, I think the you know, overarching is that I'm really tenacious. <laughs> so, yeah, why do they ask me to do things? Because I, I will just keep pushing. You know, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll go again and I'll go again. And I think that's the salesperson. To be honest, I think that's the recruiter in me. Um, right. you know, it's, it's not, as I said at the beginning, when you asked me about recruitment, you know, there's I hadn't appreciated the ups and downs that that you have to go through. People are wonderful and disappointing, all in the same uh, in, in the <laughs> oh, same in the same <laughs> breath. Um, so understanding that and having that kind of thick skin that people will disappoint you, you will get let down, you will be surprised by what you just couldn't see in their personality and their their values. And but actually being able to dust off and just say, well, that's human nature, right? Let's go again. Let's find someone that will be the right person to, to help me drive this. So, so I think that's why I continue to get asked. I think it is a fairness. It is a drive. It is a tenacity. And um, I do really enjoy it. And there's times where I don't, of course, like everybody, when you're trying to build something that's hard. There's times when you're like, why can't I just take the easy job? Why am I here again? But it is fulfilling when you get it right. Given that you're a partner in a big four in the UK, the one of the biggest professional services um, markets in the world, you manage a team of 150 and you have your own sales targets. How do you deal with stress and, you know, prioritizing and all that sort of stuff? I mean, what do you do to help you get through the next day? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. I think most people will 
the flippant answer is not not well. I don't deal with it well. But everybody feels that way. I don't think you ever meet somebody that goes, oh, yeah, I've got this stress thing. I've got it covered, right? I've nailed this. I think as you take on more, it's just more, right? And that's the way to look at it. Um, it's a bit like somebody who's using the analogy like with kids. You know, one feels hard, two feels impossible. Then you get to three, and after that, it's just more. There's just more of them. You know, it's the, it's, the, it's the sort of same thing. So, so, so I think it, it, it's the same. I just have to look at it as there's lots of things that I could do personally. However, there's a big team, all of which are quite responsible people, all of which have quite a high investment financially in them as individuals to perform. So therefore, they have to perform. Right. It's not about here's your target and you must hit it. It's actually about what environment do they need? Are they in the right role? Are they doing the right thing? How can I move a team around me that can be a single team that really supports the things that I'm being asked to do? Not my goals, but the things the firm has asked me to execute. How do I create a team that is also executing really well around those things? So it's a lot about leverage. Um, it's a lot about being brave enough to actually not be the person that's in the spotlight all the time. You know, having you know, great plaudits when something goes well. Mm-hmm. is absolutely standing back and letting the team succeed and hear that actually that's them. It's nothing to do with me. There's a certain amount of courage that comes with that because if you've always been that person that's been the one that stood out as being the doer, back to what I was saying earlier, and always hitting the target and always being in that top top end, when you start stepping away from that, there's kind of like this comfort blanket of like, well, I want to be the one that's that's driving these sales. I want to be the one that's getting you know all the congratulations. What if I'm not valued anymore? Mm. That's the grown-up bit that... I think, yeah, you know, I, I still struggle with, but that's the bit that you have to do in order to manage the stress. Otherwise, yeah. you will overcommit and underdeliver. This is such a good lesson for all salespeople who have ambition to lead sales teams. That letting go of the sale and helping others to win is the job of a team leader. It goes against an alpha sales personality, as you can tell from his honest account of his own experience. But it's essential if your team is to excel and if you want to keep your sales force motivated and rewarded. One of the things that we do on Deep CV Diving is we ask and interview the previous guest. We ask them to give us a question for the next guest. Yeah. And so our last guest, Kane Dowsett, um, set you a question, which was, um, tell us something about you that's not on your CV. <laughs> okay, well, there's many things. So I mentioned earlier that I wasn't the most academic of, of kids. I, I went to a school that was a was rather a place that you arrived at and had a good time rather than you really strive to excel. And when I was about 15, I was on Panorama. Uh, they came around to the schools, took a selection of children uh, from boys' schools. So it was only boys. And they took us into Maidstone Prison for the day and filmed us with, with the inmates. Now, we were selected on the basis of kids that probably could try harder, you know, solid kind of D's and E's in the results. Let's see if these kids kind of wake up a bit. And that was the whole idea around this panorama documentary. So I was filmed meeting some people. And I think that was, for me, at that age, was a, mass, was a real turning point of like, I need to make something here. Mm-hmm. How that followed through then to when I was at, um, at art college was that recognition of I need to make something, right? And when I looked around and, and some of my good friends still today, they're incredibly talented and I just wasn't that talented, right? And I recognised that of like, there, there's got to be another way for me to, to 
make my own success and not just be the, the kind of continuous D student that I'd been, you know, for pretty much my entire <laughs> academic career. So that's what really kind of drove me to, to step out of it. Now, now that as a background, as you can imagine, does not gel with the big four of old. But actually, if you look at what we're doing now and how all businesses should be looking, like social mobility, really important. Doesn't matter whether you are gifted, not gifted. Um, we need a mix of these people and their experiences in organisations for it to be fair and equitable for starters, but actually for us to be successful. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm sure what I bring because of some of that background is probably that tenacity and drive and ability to get up and go every day. Yeah, so, so social mobility and getting it right for any business now is so important. We look at what it means to have diversity as we see it. So optical diversity, and there's an importance to that. But social diversity is really important. And social mobility within these organisations is really important. It's great if you've got great technical people, right? You need them and they have studied really hard. And I'm sure there's formative experiences that, that got them there. My formative experiences give me that tenacity and drive that, that I have today. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, Panorama... And being there with, with my friends, you know, I smile every time I talk about it because we were all full of confidence going in there thinking it was hilarious. And then, as you could imagine, you know, it wasn't so funny once they shut the doors behind us, took our shoelaces and our belts away and we had to walk across with all the inmates screaming at us from the cells. And I, that, that was quite a leveller. And I, I have great appreciation for some of these things that others might maybe see as just, you know, part of life. I think every one of them has been quite a moment in in helping me succeed, but importantly, making sure that as I do, I've really got an eye on everyone else around me mm -hmm. and making sure that they're, they're going to be successful too. Brilliant. What's your favourite interview question that you like to ask? It's always about the person as we've just had with me. I, I think CVs, you get a really good experience and, and you know, you get round to the interests. Interests are brilliant, how people write interests. I love it. I always ask what they do socially. Right, because they'll have their sports. They have their, like it'd be like, no, I love skiing and I love walking and I love the outdoors or whatever. Right, and it's all it's all a little bit vanilla. Right, so what has been your best social day or night out in the last year, and why? That's a really good one. I shall ask that one. Mm. My final question for you: re reflecting back on when you took that job as a van driver at DHL, as a courier at DHL, and to now this moment in time, mm -hmm. what has been the best thing that your career has delivered to you? Space and time. So uh, one of my daughter, uh, daughters has medical issues, and it means that every so often we have to go and get her checked up in London. And whenever I go to do that, I'm undisturbed, right? And I don't have to tell anyone. It's just very clear. It's marked in my diary. I never get a call. I never get asked to review something quickly on my phone. I, I never get disturbed at all. And that for that one day, I'll work 20 extra. Right? It's really important to me to, to have that time. And I think if I look back on, on my career, um, that sort of flexibility did not exist for us yeah, 10 years ago, um, let alone 20. And I feel so fortunate to be part of that generation that gets this flexibility. It's important that I get the space to, to do what I need to do as, as somebody that has a family. Well, 
Thank you so much for giving us the space and time to listen to your career story today. I'm sure there'll be lots of people who are very motivated by our solid D&E grade student who did a little <laughs> stint in prison, ended up being a partner at EY. Well done to you. Thank you so much. That is, that is a brilliant summary, Graham. I think maybe, uh, you know, if I ever have to write my CV again, maybe that's how I'll start it. <laughs> you, you just call me. <laughs> have a great day. Thank you. I see you soon. Bye. Bye.